First John chapter 3 is uh, where we're at, and so we're going to continue in First John to get through everything that I have planned today. I'm going to pick up verse 11, which is actually technically kind of in the middle of a thought, but of a paragraph. Uh, once again, reminds you that, uh, you know, the background of First John, which is so important, so I say this every week, but you got to remember when we have people come and go, uh, in, in watching online, coming and going. Uh, John Rice's letter, 85 to 90 AD, he, in the last few letters anybody wrote in the New Testament, John wrote them. I'm not, not talking about how you read them in the New Testament, I'm just saying when they were written. And uh, he was writing to the area of what we call Asia Minor, we would call it Turkey. Uh, and he was writing to those churches. And uh, they were dealing right here, as I said before, with false teaching. And the primary false teaching was what we call Gnosticism. Uh, comes from the word gnosis, our word agnostic, without knowledge, gnosis, knowledge. And so it was, in, in, in a nutshell, Gnostics, which was a philosophy that infected all different types of religious groups, and not just Christianity. But it was, it was a heresy that believed in what we call dualism, that there was a distinction between the physical, the fleshly, and the spiritual. And that... Um, the two were, were disconnected, so you could live basically however you wanted in the fleshly sense. And the flesh was evil, they admitted that, but you could live that way. But if you, spiritually, if you were intact with God, you were okay. Uh, and, and the way you were intact with God was not through faith in Jesus, it was through right knowledge. It was this knowledge you had to have, gnosis. Uh, like I said many, every week, no one's, I've never seen anyone tell me what this knowledge was. I mean, no one really knew what the knowledge was, it's this mystery concept. Because of that understanding, they rejected the concept or the idea that Jesus was God in the flesh. They had to reject the whole nature of Jesus as being both physical and divine. Uh, the person, Jesus, was just a human, born by natural, you know, nothing, nothing supernatural about his birth. He died. He was not raised back to life. The, this, in their concept, you have to understand the weirdness of it all. But this, this eon, this spirit emanation that they would known as the Christ, came upon him at his baptism, lifting at his crucifixion. And so, so much of what you read in 1 John is dealing with this issue and, and, and the way they live their life. And now we're really, right now, we're in a, in a part, we've talked about a little bit already about how, you know, what their, their doctrinal system is, but now we're really kind of uh, talking about the way you live your life. See, they basically believed you could live any way you wanted, but if you had the right knowledge, you had this gnosis, then you, you were good to go. So you could live a fleshly, worldly, sinful life. Because the physical was separate from the spiritual. By the way, that is very common today. That most everything that we see and come in contact today, you can go back to antiquity and you can find it there philosophically or religiously somewhere. Uh, you know, all of the stuff you see. And it was there. And so in verse, in verse 11, picking up with everything that he said, and this becomes so important. For the message which you have heard from the beginning, the word message, the concept of message, what you have been taught from the beginning, Okay, forget what the Gnostics have taught you, what, what you have been taught from the beginning. And, and all the big time prophets have been through Asia Minor. John, you know, lives there right there. Peter had been there. Paul had been there. From the beginning, the beginning of, your, of experiencing the gospel, that we should notice this, love one another. Now this, the, the concept of love was completely and totally absent from Gnosticism. Completely, totally absent. Gnosticism was an elitist philosophy. 
It was an elitist philosophy that basically said when you had the right knowledge that you needed, you were right with God and you were above everyone else and you could live your life however you wanted and, and you could look down upon people. You were an elite level of Christian. Listen, we see that today. You know, so I've been doing this for 40 years, and I can't tell you the number of times, but even within the Baptist church, that I've seen people have this elitist mentality of, you know, I'm saved, I live right, I do everything right, I'm faithful to church, I teach, blah, 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 and somehow I am better than you. You ever met someone like that? Sure you have. You've been around long enough. You've seen it, even in churches. That's the, this is concept that they had. And so John comes... And this is what he does, and this is what's so beautiful. He just shatters that by saying, ultimately, it is not this knowledge that distinguishes you. How do I know someone is truly a follower of Christ? John says this, you love for one another, your brethren. And here's the cool thing. He gets that straight from John, the other book, you know, the, the epistle he wrote, the gospel he wrote. He wrote the gospel of John. He already wrote about this in John 13, verse 34 and 35. I'm sure all of you that were here last summer remember when I preached that series out of John 13. And the first and last messages I preached in that series uh, it was a nine-week series, which I know some people think eight- or nine-week sermon series seem kind of long, Looking at my staff back there as they talk, because I'm going to pick on them. But, uh, you know, but, but really, you know, it was that, that message was this, that we love one another. And remember, let's talk about how important love and what does love mean. And, and he's going back to his gospel saying, this is what Jesus says. So, I say this all the time. If what you teach is the opposite or doesn't agree with what Jesus teaches, you're probably wrong. You may want to reevaluate what you're teaching. Because I guarantee you one thing, that part, the other part ain't changing. John says you got to love one another. you got to love your brethren. And, and, and remember we talked about you start, if you can't love the people that you worship with and celebrate Jesus with, how are you ever going to love someone outside the faith? How can you ever love a lost person if you can't even love a saved person, man? Think about that. How can you love the people? And here's the thing. You know what people out there really, really want to know? They don't, they don't expect you to be sinless. They don't expect you to be perfect. They know. They don't expect you to have all the answers. They want to know there's a genuineness to your faith. And that genuineness, we call it authenticity. The authenticity, authenticity if I could say the word, it would help. The authenticity is that you love people. Jesus took ten commandments, made them two, love God, love others. And then shortly before his death, he just took those two and said, listen, if you love God, then you love one another. So the ultimate test is simply this, do you love one another? That's so foreign to Gnosticism. And this is, remember, and I've told you this all the time, and I preached about love a couple weeks ago, I preached about John 3.16. This is not the world's concept of love. This is the concept of agape love, and I've shared this with you numerous times, I won't go into detail of it. It is the love that gives of yourself. It is the self-sacrificing, self-giving love. And, he, and, and he's, he's, he just got through talking to him and writing about you don't practice lawlessness. You don't practice sin. Instead, here's what you do. You love one another. And in verse 12, then he gives an illustration. Not as, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So he, he, he references Cain. Uh, and 
you know, referencing Cain kind of goes back to verse 8, the devil. The, the Cain represented the, the philosophy of the devil. He killed his brother. Now, he killed his literal brother, his physical brother. And, and he said the reason he did it, it was simple. Because he had given himself over to evil. And the action, the lack of love was the evidence of that. And, and the greatest example, or, the, or I should say the, the lack of love, the ultimate act of a lack of love is killing someone. So, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 21, starting there, he said, you, you've heard, don't commit murder, but I say to you, don't even hate anyone. Because here's the thing. Before you, hate, before you kill someone, you will hate them. Murder is the result of a lack of love. If, if you truly have real love, biblical love, you don't do that. You know, there's the old saying, you always hurt the one you love. Well, that's not agape love. That's some other kind of love. You don't hurt. When you, when you have agape love, when you have the love that God calls, you don't hurt anybody. You love an example. So he gave the example of Cain. It's an extreme example, but it shows the path you're heading towards. And sometimes one of the things that we need to do is help people realize where you're at right now may not seem like a big deal, but the inevitable conclusion of this path is you up here. And sometimes our task is to help them say, if you don't stop where you're at now and everything seems cool, but you're going to end up over here. And it won't be that way. I remember when my, my daughter was still in high school and, uh, and I was such full of such great fatherly advice to her that she uh, listened to, of course, all the time. But I remember, and she was a good kid. My daughter was a good kid, so I don't want you to think that. Uh, so when she was an adult, no, I'm saying she was a good kid. <laughs> And, uh, but, you know, I tried to get these pearls of wisdom, like my mama used to get, say to me, you know, my mom used to give me, you know, all sorts of pearls of wisdom that I can't repeat anymore. Um, like, I'm going to slap you in the next year. I kind of wish that happened last year. That would have been nice, but, you know, stuff like that. I can't remember what I was going to say about my, oh yeah, my daughter. Because I was thinking all the things my mama said to me. I'm like, Mom, you lied. <laughs> you ever realize your parents lie to you? <laughs> then you realize you lie to your own kids. So I don't think that lies a sin. <laughs> so I used to say to my daughter, I said, baby, understand this. There's going to come a time when your daddy can't get you out of trouble. If you go down a path long enough, at some time, at some point, your daddy can't do anything. I can't, I don't have, I, I can't, I can't buy your way out. I can't hire, I can't, daddy won't be able to get you out of that mess. Now I can, but maybe one day I can. It, it's so important, and, and this is the seductive nature of sin. Sin is always fun. Sin is always cool. And at first, sin seems okay. But you keep following that path. You can't get out of it. But when you love people, there's always a way out. And it's Jesus, right? But you love people. And so he says, verse 13, he says this then, talking about the world and dealing with the Gnostics. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. So in, in John 15, 18, in John 13, Jesus, you know, 
you know, gives the message up in the upper room. And then, uh, and then that did the deep fry last summer on that Friday night. She did John 14, 15, 16, the upper room discourse. And in John 15, 18, Jesus says, the world hates me. It's going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. The culture, anytime a culture is in opposition to God, it's going to despise and hate you. Why wouldn't it hate Christ? Why do you act surprised when people who are lost don't like you? Or they mock you. And we're like, well, I don't understand why the world, why this is happening to me. Why is the world doing this? Why is the culture and the world we live in, why are they opposed to us? Because they're opposed to Christ. What do you think? Listen, if the world in opposition to Christ really likes you, you're doing something wrong. You really are. And I say this all the time now. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I'm a pretty optimistic, upbeat guy, but don't think it's all going to get better. It's going to be tough. Verse 14, we know. We have knowledge. We have a knowledge the Gnostics don't have. Remember, the Gnostics are big on knowledge. We know. We have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. So here's what is the evidence of salvation. I love people. I care about people. I don't mean I love them, you know, in the worldly sense. I mean, as a follower of Jesus, there's a sense of love for, the, for brothers in Christ. We care. It's evidence of our salvation. It's, it's evidence that we have the right knowledge, the knowledge of Jesus. Verse 15 says, then, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding or residing in him. And think about that. It's, that's a hard statement. But if you hate your brother, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. If you hate your brother, you, you're as good as a murderer. In the eyes of God, you have, you have had a heart towards killing. You know, this is what I tell People talk about hate and love and all that stuff. Basically, the concept biblically of hate is this. If in your mind of thinking about a person, you would prefer that they be dead, that is hatred. Yeah. Just, just disliking someone immensely. I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's not, it's not hatred. You know, uh, yeah. Can I dislike someone? Well, yes, but not for long. But hatred is that intensity where fundamentally when you view them, your preference would be they not be alive. That, that can't be a part of our life. Now, we, I understand that, you know, and I, and I get, okay, someone, someone is a mass murderer and kills, and you say he needs to, she needs to, he needs to die. It's always a he. I, I get that. We're talking about justice. I know that. I'm talking about interpersonal relationships in the people you deal with. Is there anybody you want dead? Don't go there. You got you to gotta follow Christ. It's not where we need to end up. And so he says, verse 16, we know love by this. This is, this is the example of love. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. Jesus says, no, later, greater, no greater love does a man have than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. The greatest act of love is the cross. Um, in March, April, we're preaching a series about the cross. And uh, in, in one of the sermons I'm going to preach, I forget which one. I think it's the third one, maybe. And I'm going to preach from Romans 5, 8. For God showed his great love for us. Jesus died for us. Preached two weeks ago, God so loved the world that he gave his son. You know, and, and it says of Jesus, Jesus says of himself, no greater love does someone have than to lay down his life. 
John's saying here. How do we know what love looks like? Love looks a lot like Jesus. So we, you know, lay down your life for your brother. Now, and then you got to be, we have to be careful this a little bit because we don't live when they lived. So you got to remember, John wrote this shortly before he wrote Revelation. And Revelation was written to the same general area where intense persecution was going on. I, uh, this year, our deep fry, that, and you don't know what deep fry is, there's a Friday night every year that I go from like 6.30 to 10.30 and I just teach a passage or a book of scripture. And it's, I think it's the end of July this year. It's always the end of July, 1st August. And it's in the book of Revelation. And uh, I haven't taught anything of Revelation in my six years here, so I'm going to. That may be the end of my tenure here, but I'm going to do that. But he wrote it to people who, these same group of people who were suffering immensely. And, and, and they were dying. And so it, it would be very easy, it would be very easy for the Romans, and for the, the Romans, the group within Asia Minor who were representing the Romans, the, the, the council that was doing that, to come and, and say, well, let you live if you tell us who the other brothers are. Who are the other Christians? Tell us all the Christians that you die. And Real love would say, I'm not going to give them up. And you would lay down your life. This happens, by the way, all over the world. It has throughout the history of Christianity. It just doesn't happen here in America. It really doesn't. The, the, the understanding that being a Christian may be a death sentence. And so that's really the concept. That, that you have such love that it's not that I'm willing to give my life for yours. It's the, it's the love that is so entrenched in your faith that you would never betray another believer. You would never betray them. You love them. You live that love. Now, if you're going to do that to another person, you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to ridicule them. You're not going to make fun of them. You're not going to have an attitude towards them that is hurtful or mean. You're going to love and lift them up. You're going to care about them. And you're not going to let false teachers drag you away to a system that is fundamentally the opposite of this, which is what they were facing. Right on time. All right, I'm good on time. He says this, though, verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods <laughs> and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So he gives an illustration. Now, there again, we've got to understand the context of that day. They, they lived in a time where poverty was a real issue. And when, when people may have nothing, and they lived day to day, and they lived at a time when Christians were being persecuted or pressured at least, and they could lose their jobs, and they could lose their family, and they, they could have nothing to be out on, on their own. You see that in Acts chapter 2 where you're helping because they were hungry and all that. So let me just say, it's hard for us to relate to that because we don't really live that way. We really don't. We're Americans. We live pretty good. I live, pretty good. I live in a nice house. Drive two nice cars. I only drive one at a time. I only drive one at a time, but I have two nice cars. And I eat well, obviously. And we, we live well. Um, I've seen true poverty uh, in Laredo especially you know, we, I, we passed, I passed First Laredo, and we had a church, a uh, Hispanic church plant. Uh, on, we, we were on the border there, too. We were literally on the border, border on the river, big time, like El Paso. 
And there was a little church in one of the poorest communities in all of America on this side. It was on the river uh, and, uh, called El Ceniso. And we, and we, had a, we helped plant a church there and brought a Hispanic pastor over, a Mexican national pastor over to pastor it from the other side. And it was just dirt poor that people would come from the other side of the river. They would basically be squatters. They would start off with just cardboard, cardboard, and then maybe they'd get some plywood or, or corrugated tin. They were just dirt poor and nothing. And so that, that's the kind of poverty that, that could happen back then. And, and John's saying, hey, listen, the, the, the Gnostics are, are, are so caught up in themselves and their elitism and their fluence they're, they're neglecting the most important things. You've got to take care of one another. Y'all are suffering and persecuting. You love to take care of one another. Ministry begins there. Um, and, and I hear a lot of people take stuff and translate it today and try to make it applicable today, and it's hard to do. It doesn't mean you only take care of brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you help others poor as well. There's a responsibility we have, but you begin there. He said, if you won't take, so the, the meaning of it is this, if you won't take care of your own, how do you love? What is the world going to think of you if you won't even take care? If they know your own people are being persecuted and they're starving and hungry and you won't show them a love to take care of them, why would anyone ever trust you with them? Why would they think you would help them? Now, you just, you just think about that across the board as followers of Christ. If we don't provide and take care and love our own, why would anyone ever think we would love them? So he gives that example. And, and you know, and, and this, really not, this is really not an issue about poverty or helping the poor, though that's there. It's an issue about your love is so deep and firmly entrenched within you that you, you demonstrate to one another and meet their needs. Verse 18, once again, he says, little children, let us not love with just word or tongue, but indeed in truth. Your love is born out in your actions. Verse 19, we will know this, but that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. So he uses the word heart. And so let me just stop here with the 19 of heart, word heart, because we're going to look at it in 19, 20, and 21. The word heart here is not the word for emotion. It is the word for the part of you that makes decision. It, and here it really is the idea of conscience. Does any of your versions have the word conscience? Or just lift your hand. Anybody have the word conscience? It's the concept. So no, none of you have it. Okay. And, and so he's talking about the conscience that's within you. And remember, he's... he's this is all in the context of false teachers that are coming in and infecting the church and teaching them that you can live however you want. You can do whatever you want. As we've seen in the last couple of weeks, he's talked about their behavior, their acts of righteousness, and what that needs to look like as opposed to the sinfulness. And now he's talking about love, and he's bringing all this together now. And he says, in whatever, in verse 20, in whatever our heart condemns us, our conscience condemns us, understand God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So our conscience at some point may be condemning us. That never happened with the Gnostics, who separated how you live physically with your connection to God and care nothing for love. And, and, and John's saying, listen, you're a follower of Christ now. You're part of the brethren. Your conscience, your heart may condemn you. Understand that God is greater than that. God, God goes beyond our conscience. And that, and that in Christianity, the forgiveness, the mercy, he says, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. And then he says in verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In other words, if your conscience is clear, then you have this boldness before God. So here's what he's saying. Don't let your conscience get the best of you. He's already talked about in chapter 1, confessing sins. Confess your sin. Get your conscience right. Because once your conscience is right, once you're right with God, and you've gone past this junk, you've gone past this, this 
heresy. And you're living and you're acting with a person of love. You can be bold in your life. You have confidence. And he says in verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in sight. Now, this does not mean, do not take this to mean, and I hear this all the time, we can ask God for anything we want. He'll give it to us. That's not what he's saying. Within the context of all that he's saying, within the context of this church, with the understanding of how we ought to live and how we ought to love, when you are, when you are where God wants you to be and you're living this life, you're going to come before God. You're going to pray asking for the things of God. And when you ask for the things of God, you will see the blessings. So uh, let me just give you this. I am far, <laughs> and most of you know me well enough, no, I am far from living a life that is conscious and guilt-free. All right, you got, I got that. Okay, I know. I've got plenty of sin. Uh, in fact, fortunately, I have several emails a week pointing them out to me, and I appreciate that too. <laughs> so my prayer life, and, and it's, I'm, I'm not, not, people say, Pat, people, I get emails from folks, you need to pray, you got connections to God. I'm like, no, seriously, there are people who are far better at praying for you than I am. But this is what I pray for. God, you be glorified. And let us get people to come to Christ. And that's all I really want. And with that in mind, you know what I see a lot of in my life right now? I see a lot of God being glorified. And I see a lot of people coming to Jesus. Not because of me. No, no, I'm not saying me. I'm just saying I see that. You, my staff, what a great staff that I have, we have, um, that just serves God and, and leads people to Jesus all the time. And you do it. You, and, and we just see, and we see it and we see it because that's what we want, that's what you desire. It's okay. I pray for health. I got that. I, there are plenty of people's health I pray for, and I pray for my family all the time. And I got all that. And, I, and I, occasionally I slip in a, a thing or two that I might like, seeing if God will work that in, sliding in there. But you know what we really pray for? As I get older, I understand. My pra- as I get older, my prayer life simplifies. I don't add things to it. I simplify what I pray for. God, you be glorified. Help people come to Jesus. And everything else take care of itself. So verse 23 is beautiful. This is the commandment. This is his commandment. This is the commandment. Number one, that we believe in the name of his son. No, man. That we believe. The purpose, that, that, that is the purpose that we believe in the name of his son. And here the idea of name is we, we believe through the name. Or we, we're believing in the son. We have faith in the son. We've already come to faith. He's not talking about getting saved. We're already saved. He's saying we live in that faith. And then son Jesus Christ. And then second, we love one another. He commanded us to do that. Remember, John wrote that. All the apostles wrote about Jesus commanding us to love. You know, Jesus, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, love God, love others. That's what they said. You know, and then John, you know, love one another. All four of the gospel writers got that command to love in there. So here's, here's our life. Here's how we do. Here's how we live. We believe. We live by faith every day. And we love people every day. You live by faith and you love people. Doesn't mean your problem's going away. Doesn't mean everything's going to be all right all the time. Doesn't mean you're going to slide by. But if you live by faith and you love, you're going to be where God wants you to be. You're going to be right 
where he wants you to be. You're going you're gonna to be Tom Brady <laughs> of the spiritual world, and you're going to win everything. I saw a video today. He has a $2 million boat. Did you know that? And they were celebrating, and he took the Lombardi trophy and threw it from one boat to another boat across a river. Beautiful pass. <laughs> Verse 24. Listen to this. Listen how this, this chapter ends. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. You're right there. You're right. What are the commandments? He just told you. Not the Ten Commandments. Oh, well, here I go. I get, to, I get this stuff all the time. You know, pretty sure God keep the Ten Commandments. You don't preach enough about the Ten Commandments. You know, Emma, let's listen, 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 listen. He's talking about the two he just gave, faith and love. You live that way, okay? You keep that. You abide. You remain. You are steadfast in him. And he in him. And we know that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. So how, how do I know I'm a follower of Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit dwells within me. And the evidence I know the Holy Spirit dwells within me is I live by faith and I love. And there you go. Remember, so much of the, of the book of John is about the assurance of our salvation. In chapter 5, five verse uh, 13, he's going to say, These things are right unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, you may know, you may have absolute confidence you have eternal life. And here he says, listen, and I, and I get people all the time struggling with their salvation. I get it. I understand. And I, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you with that. But this is how you know. You have faith. You live that faith every day. And you love. And the Holy Spirit indwells within you. The mark of salvation is the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have some you know, Christian friends who love them. They believe that you get the Holy Spirit sometime after you get saved. And they're wrong on that one. Salvation is the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. And the evidence of that is you live by faith and you love. Now, if that describes you, good. That doesn't mean you don't, that you're sin-free and you don't have some problems because you do. But that's right where you want to be.